you have your, uh, your Bibles this morning, please open them to the book of 3 John. Uh, you can find 3 John simply by flipping to the book of Revelation, which is at the very, very end, and then moving forward two books, uh, two very short books. The letter of Jude should probably only take up one page in your Bible, and then 3 John would be right before that. If you aren't careful, you will skip right over 3 John because it is very small indeed. Like its cousin 2 John, it is a short chapter, a wee 15 verses that we will go through today. It is a cousin to 2 John, not only in that it is small and not only that it was written by the Apostle John, not only that it is found in the back of our Bibles, but also in that it is sort of the, the antithesis of the book of 2 John. In 2 John, we were warned specifically not to support those who preach a false gospel because in preaching a false gospel, if we support those who do, we take part in what they do. We take part in their wicked works. In 3 John, we have the flip of that. We are to support those who do good missions work, who do the right type of preaching and teaching so that we can also join and partner with them. Thus they form two incredibly useful bookends for us. One, detailing why you shouldn't provide hospitality and support, and the other, prodding us to do so. In this sense, I'm, I'm reminded of two very famous Proverbs in, in Proverbs 26, verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 says that we should answer not a fool according to his folly, lest we be like him ourselves. 5 turns around and says that we should answer a fool according to his folly, because he cannot be wise in his own eyes. These things aren't meant to be contradictory. Many foolish people have taken them to be so, but they're certainly not contradictory. There are times when it is right and appropriate to answer a fool. There are times when it is best probably for us to be quiet in front of them. Scripture doesn't give us exact definitions as to when these situations arise. How are we supposed to act in every single situation in our life? We don't have clear guidelines on that. There are huge gray swaths of our lives that are neither white nor black in how we are to act. And so Scripture provides these general guidelines. Certainly, there are times when we need to keep our mouths shut. It is inappropriate to answer every single falsehood that comes down the pipe. So in 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy 6, excuse me, Paul warns Timothy in verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. It says there are times when these people open up their mouths to speak simply to stir up controversy, simply to stir up dissension among the people of God. Timothy, those are not times to open your mouth. But then in Peter 3.15, 1 Peter 3.15, we read that we are always to be prepared to make an answer, to give a defense for anyone who asks for the reason of the hope that is in you. There are times when you are not to open your mouth, and there are times that you have to open your mouth. This is the world that we live in. There are always going to be these gray spots. So here, we clearly have one of those gray spots. There are times in which we have to support missionaries as they go out. Third John implores us to do that. Second John says there are also times when you absolutely cannot do that. Now, unlike answering a fool, we have more guidelines given to us here. And so as we do, 
Let's go to 3 John and see what 3 John is imploring us to listen to and to hear and how John is imploring us to actually support missions. We find that 3 John here is focused on both wisdom and missions and calling us to support those who rightly preach the gospel. 3 John reads this way. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that all and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who, wants to, who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. May God add his richest blessing to this reading of his word. Third John is, if possible, even more personal of a letter than Second John was. Second John, written from the apostle to the dear lady or the elderly lady. The elderly lady, some have questions as to whether that's an actual lady, an actual woman, and maybe it's sort of a code word for a church. So it could be that John in Second John is writing to a church, and, and we get much more generalized implications from that book than we do from Third John, but Third John is incredibly personal. It is a book from one elder to one individual person, this Gaius. And certainly he has much good to say about Gaius. But because the letter is so personal, we're going to have to fill in some of the circumstances in which the letter was written. The difficulty in doing that, however, is the fact that Third John is the only book that we have written in the history of the world that actually references the situation to which John is writing. It is the only place that we can cue any of the information from this about. But we can pull some things from it. First, we know that John is an elder of a church, and he appears to be an elder of a church that's some distance away from both Gaius and Diotrephes. We know this because he is sent people out. The brothers have gone out from him. These brothers appear to be missionaries. If you look in verse 7, it says that they went out um, for the sake of the name. That, that appears to be something of a missionary call. So John's church is sending missionaries some ways away from where he is, and he is sending them specifically here to Gaius. In verses 1 and 5, we read of that. It's likely that John, at this point in time, is the last surviving apostle But that means historically that there is ongoing then a transfer of power 
right? The apostles were appointed above all of the churches, but we read from Paul, as the apostles are making their way off of the earth, he is transferring power to people like Timothy and to other elders of the church. So there is a sort of power shift, if you will, from the apostles to the elders of churches around the Mediterranean. John's voice still holds sway, but local pastors are gaining more importance. John's church seems to have been sending out missionaries to locations around his church. He can still travel and see Gaius, as we read at the end. But certainly, at least to locations near the church, which is where we think that Gaius and Diotrephes would be found. These two men are not only the focal points of this letter, but they are also antitheses of one another. Gaius responding well to John's authority and to John's sending out of missionaries, Diotrephes rejecting anything to do with either one. These brothers then returned to John, reporting both to him and to the entire church of Gaius's aid, help, and love, as we read repeatedly in verse 6. On the other hand, this Diotrephes character received not only a letter from John, which seems as though Diotrephes either destroyed or just completely rejected because it doesn't appear as though the church knows anything about the letter. It doesn't appear the church knows at all what Diotrephes is up to because John says, when I come, I'm going to let the church know. So Diotrephes was sort of underhandedly keeping things from the church. He places himself before the apostle, which we read in verse 9. He speaks slanderous gossip against him in verse 10. He doesn't only refuse to welcome the brothers sent by John's church, but those who want to welcome them, he kicks out of his own church as a way to keep himself in high place. It doesn't take much of a great interpreter to see that John thinks that Gaius is quite commendable in his actions while Diotrephes is quite deplorable. At least that much is clear from the letter. What we need to do then is to look into the letter and seek reasons why we are to give aid and support to Christian missionaries. Okay? Now our situation is much different than the situation in John's time. These missionaries came to them and they were staying there, but certainly the idea is that you are lending aid and support to missionaries. So why is it that our church today in 21st century America ought to lend aid and support to missionaries? And I think that this letter has much to tell us about that. Also, reasons and ways why we shouldn't. Okay? There are reasons why you should give to missionaries. And there are also a host of bad reasons in this letter why you shouldn't keep from doing it, which we will get to in time. First, though, we are to give support to missionaries because it gives encouragement to missionaries. We get to encourage missionaries. You have to be a really, really dull reader, not to catch John's excitement and and joy over how Gaius has been treating the brothers who went to him. Part of this inevitably comes from knowing that you have a friend who's helping you in missions. John has sent these people out, and he has not sent them out into the wolves, but they have found common ground with people that they can stay with and be helped and aided by. But it is quite amazing that it's John who is this helped and aided by and just this encouraged, frankly, by the events that have taken place. Again, we we said how you find this letter is you turn to the book of Revelation. It's very easy to then think the book of Revelation is really important. We should probably read through that sometime, and maybe we can. The book of Revelation is an incredibly important book, but it is incredibly dark as well. 
Most people want to read it for all of the wonderful pictures that it provides, but it paints a very bleak and dark picture, depending on how you want to interpret it, either of the world that we are in or the world that is to come. John, the same John who pens this letter, pens that letter as well. You don't have to read far in the book before you find out that John clearly understood that current events, no matter how bleak they look, were fully under the control of God and that God himself would eventually, as we even talked about this morning in Sunday school, make all things right. But he does paint a very bleak picture. Satan is pictured as a dragon prowling around the earth. He unleashed upon the earth not only atrocities, but also the false prophet and the, the great beast, Right? Not only denying the Trinity, but even mocking the Trinity by providing three pictures of himself to the world. What's worse than that is not only does he persecute the world, not only does he lead them astray, but he sucks all of the nations in. He persecutes the church. He bloodies the ground with her. And yet it is all through a book of total and complete hope. No matter how bleak the situation was, John was sure that Christ was going to have victory over it. Seals are broken as God's will is done. Bowls of God's wrath are poured out upon a wicked and deceitful world. Trumpets announce both the coming of the king and his retribution. The light of the gospel makes the darkness look all that more dark. John knew well that God would make all things right in the end, and he knew that Jesus Christ had won a sure and eternal victory over all his foes. How much more then should we be in amazement at the encouragement that John gets and the joy he has simply by hearing that Gaius provided shelter to brothers? John knew very well all of this is going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. And yet he is joyous in his spirit. He is encouraged immensely by the fact that Gaius simply welcomed these people into his own house. Imagine what that does for missionaries who are on the field. Imagine what that does for people who don't get the vision that John gets, who don't know what the risen Lord looks like. John, more than anyone, would have had reasons for hope. He saw the resurrected Lord. He saw him powerfully testify to his own eternal power. Not only in visions in the book of Revelation, but physically before him. Our missionaries don't get that. We can encourage our missionaries so much simply by showing our support for them, by giving them our support in prayer, in money, in time. Letting them know that we care by living lives to help fund and support what they do. Notice how John is effusive in his praise, not simply because he loves Gaius and not just due to Gaius, but because his heart is overflowing with gratitude and joy. Listen to how he says in verse 4, I have no greater joy. No greater joy. This dude has seen the resurrected Lord. He, He knows how everything's going to finish out. And he says, this is where my heart sings. This is how Christ wins victory over the world that you walk in truth. Secondly, we are wise to support missionaries because we get to partner with them. We get to partner with missionaries. 
John makes it clear that Gaius is a faithful brother, that he walks in the truth, but his desire to help missionaries has done something else for Gaius. It isn't just that he gets to encourage them, but it's also that he gets to partake with them in their own work. This idea is not new, right? We've had the negative implication of this in 2 John. When he says, listen, if you give them an opportunity to preach a false gospel, you are partners with them in their work. Go back one book and read verse 11 for me. With me in 2 John, we'll read 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. That is, you don't have to open up your mouth one time, he says. If you welcome them in, if you support them and you give them aid, even if you don't open up your mouth to preach false gospel, you are damned for preaching a false gospel. You have given them aid and you have given them support. But likewise, here, the reverse is true. When you support people who do good gospel preaching, when you support missionaries out on the field, you are likewise partaking with them in their own work. This is what he says in verse 8. Therefore, we ought to support people like these. Why, John? Why? That we may be fellow workers for the truth. You partner with them. Perhaps you cannot be a missionary. Perhaps your health isn't good enough for traveling, for staying and journeying and being there for a while. Perhaps you're not necessarily called to the mission field. Perhaps there are other reasons why you can't go on the mission field because of the age of your children, because of the, the nature of the, the calling that God has placed on you here. Many things in life can keep you from being directly involved in international missions but your support aligns you with the missionaries who are already in the field. More than just aligning you, it connects you with them and you partner with them in the work that they are doing. You are co-workers with them. You are a missionary without ever leaving your home. Do not think for a second that this is somehow a second place prize. That those people in the field, those are the real heroes and those are the real Christians who are doing the real work. Listen, That's true. They are real Christians and they are doing real work and they are heroes of the faith. They will one day be lauded in heaven for the work that they have done. But know this very well. They cannot be there if you are not here. They just can't be. There is no mission without home churches. There are no missions workers without people to send them. They must be sent. They must be funded. They must be supported. You are not called in the field, perhaps, because those in the field need your prayers unencumbered by the same trials that they face. They need people who are refreshed daily in the word to be here praying for their work. It's a heavy burden that they bear. Those in the field need your support. God provides for them by and through you. We are all on the same team. We're all fighting the same enemies. We're all fighting the same fight. We get to partner with those people. Do not think, Christian, just because God has called you to live in Bay City, that you have no hand at what happens in Toronto or the Philippines or Nairobi or Tokyo. You have a hand in that. The work that the SBC does in those areas is it's just it's impossible without you. It cannot be done. Third, 
We are wise to support missionaries because we get to be God's provision for missionaries. We get to be God's provision for missionaries. And this clearly supports and aligns with the last thing that we got done talking about. John makes it very clear in this passage that they were not willing to take a penny from the Gentiles here. Now, unfortunately, the ESV is probably wrong to say Gentiles because the, word, the name Gaius, the name uh, Demetrius later, are clearly Greek names, right? They are Gentiles. So it was probably wrong for them to use the word Gentiles because that's what these people are. Probably better to use the word pagan. What he means by this is they're not Christian people. They refused, as they were traveling, to take a penny from non-Christian people to support Christian missions. We, likewise, do not rely on the others of the world. We don't rely upon the U.S. government. We don't rely upon the government of Nairobi. We don't rely upon African or South American governments to support our missions there. We don't do that for very good reason. Listen, we are fighting against the powers and the principalities of the air, the rulers of this world. We are not so foolish as to think Satan, who works in the principalities and the powers of the air, is so foolish as to continually provide through those countries the means that will support the very undoing of his control over those countries. This is like the entire encapsulation of Jesus' response when they say, hey, you cast out demons by Beelzebub. He says, okay, let's, let's work through that, guys. If I cast out demons by the king of demons, then his kingdom is undone. His point is not just to say, that's a stupid remark for you to make to me. His point is, that's a stupid thing for Satan to do. And guys, Satan might be a lot of things, but foolish and stupid, well, foolish, yes, stupid, no. Okay? He's not stupid. He will not long allow other countries to support us in our missions. So we do it. We do it. In Genesis 14, Abraham, after winning a victory over the, the other kings in the area, having been working with even the king of Sodom, his king of Sodom comes to him and says, Hey, I've got some spoils of war. There's a lot of cash to be had here, Abraham. You have it. And what is Abraham's response to him? He says, No, 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 no. I, I, I'm only going to take what is mine, what was rightfully taken from me. I, I will take nothing else from you. And he gives a very clear reason why in Genesis 14. He says, I have sworn an oath to the creator. He, everything in the world is his. But if I take something from you, then you get to say, we are the ones who have made Abraham rich. We are the ones who have supported this work. Like faithful Abraham, we lean on God's provision through his people. That provision, friend, often comes in the form of your job, your house, your prayers. Through your support, you demonstrate God's provision for his people. And finally, we also get to set an example in love. We get to be an example of love to the missionaries. Upon returning to John's church, the missionaries gave this glowing report of their journey. This not only encouraged the believers who were there, but it was also just a wonderful teaching tool. A reminder to that church of faithful, truthful living. The love that Gaius demonstrated for these strangers, although it was, they were known only through the gospel, he had no idea who they were. They were clearly unknown to him. They were strangers. 
is an example of love for brothers and sisters in Christ that comes even to us today. I mean, if nothing else, this is an example even to us of how to love one another. They were strangers to him, and it was only by John's recommendation that he said, come in, brothers, come in. I will take you in, I will support you and give you aid because I know John, I know he walks in the truth, and therefore I know you walk in the truth. My house is your house. We likewise, in giving aid and help to the proclamation of the gospel, affirm our love not only for those missionaries, although it is clearly that, but not only for those missionaries, but also for Jesus Christ and indeed the gospel itself. We affirm both those who carry the message, meeting physical and spiritual needs for them, and further affirm the truth that they carry. This is why it's so important we strive to know and care for missionaries in some capacity because not only does it unite us with them in work, not only does it demonstrate our support for the gospel, not only does it encourage them in their work and others in like behavior, but it sets an example of love both in the church and to the world outside of it. We work diligently. You, I pray, work diligently so that we might further proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are both near and far away. Not for our glory, not for our success, not for our name, and certainly not for our fame. I don't care if anyone knows the name of Crossway Christian Church. I care a lot about people knowing the name of Jesus Christ. We ought to do so because we love Christ and deeply, deeply believe that his name deserves to be known and worshipped by all tribes, tongues, nations, and peoples. We give ourselves in prayer, pleading on their behalf. We give our time going on mission trips, supporting their work. We give of our money in support of their physical needs. In giving in each of these ways, we declare to all our fervent love, not just for those who proclaim as missionaries, but for the very thing they proclaim, Jesus Christ and the gospel of our God. But we do not just have before us today these four reasons why we ought to go into missions. We also have, alongside the wonderful example of Gaius, the deceitful and decrepit example of Diotrephes. Poor men like Diotrephes, whose names are recorded in Scripture only to denounce them. Gaius's name gets to live forever in honor and in glory diatrophies to shame. John gives us bad reasons to not support missions. Listen, do not keep supporting missions because of authority. Don't keep not supporting missions because of authority. Diatrophies, according to John, doesn't accept his authority. He doesn't want to listen to John. He doesn't need to listen to John. John's telling him to do stuff. Listen, the time of the apostles is over. The time of the pastors has come. We can do what we want. I am the authority over the church. I will set the pattern that the church is going to walk in. You don't need to listen to John. I am the authority here, he says. Listen, we know as a church we have authority We can start to ask questions like, don't we have control over ourselves to do what we want? Are we not able to interpret the scriptures as we see fit? Are we not able to declare the direction that our church moves in? Do we not have autonomy to work as we see fit? To each of these questions, the answer is clearly both yes and no. 
Yes, in many things we have control over what we'd like to do, but not in all things. We have many gray areas in life that we must make our own decisions on, and Scripture's silent on those areas. And so yeah, we get to totally determine which direction we take when it comes to those particular areas, but we have absolutely no authority whatsoever to ignore what Scripture has clearly called us to do, to do what God, through his apostles and the written word, has commanded us to do, like take the gospel to the nations. Carrying the gospel to the nations is not an optional mission for the church. It's, it's the whole reason why that you are here. Otherwise, Christ would have raptured you up immediately. You are here to make disciples of all the nations. That is your calling. Whether your calling to do that is being a hairdresser or being an engineer, it doesn't matter what the other occupation you have, your mission in life is to make disciples of all nations. That is what churches have been called for. That's what Christ has left you here to do. Yes, to do that more effectively, you mature. All of it works together, but the goal and the drive of the church is to make the glory of Jesus Christ known to all peoples. We are not just called to carry it the gospel to our homes, to our friends, and to our cities, but we are called to make it known globally. Yes, as well, we are to interpret scriptures as we see fit. We can do nothing else, right? We come and we read scripture and we have to interpret it the best we possibly can. But that does not mean that we are allowed to trample over tradition on the backs of our own personal whims. Where we do break from tradition, if we do break from tradition, it must be with mountains, and I do mean mountains of evidence, that tradition stands wrong. As in God has worked for 2,000 years through his church to establish doctrine, we do not run rompshod over what the Spirit of the Lord has done within his church for 2,000 years. After all, we're not Mormon who thinks that the church was wrong for 2,000 years, and then with the coming of Joseph Smith popped up the real truth. If you want to be the next Joseph Smith, you can be that, but the door is there. Because you're not Joseph Smith. And even if you were, he was dead wrong. God has worked through his church to bring doctrine to us. It is only with the heaviest of hearts that we can look back and say 2,000 years of Christian teaching is wrong, and frankly, I don't even know where that would be. You could say that the church has lost its, its tack on some issues along the way, but it was never fully lost. Yes, we believe that we can control the direction of our church under the autonomy that has been granted to local churches, but that simply means we get to decide how to fill these commands, not if. Not if. Just because we can do something under authority doesn't mean we should. Secondly, don't keep from supporting missions because of pride. Diotrephes is further described with just a ton of pride. He likes to put himself first. This isn't a, a humble claim to authority where like if the state convention came to us and said, listen, we're telling you that you've got to give 20% of your revenue as a church, 20% of your giving needs to go to the state convention so that we can further missions. And we could say, humbly, that's just not where our church wants to go and you don't have any authority over us. There are ways to claim authority to do so humbly under the authority of scriptures. But that is clearly not what Diotrephes is doing here. 
Diotrephes says, I am king. I am first. And everyone else trails after me, including the apostle John. His rejection of authority came about because he desired to be seen as powerful himself. He desired himself to be thought of as having authority, and he desired to gain glory for himself. Listen, there are plenty of people in this world who reject doing what is right simply because they're commanded to do so. Just, listen, this is like every kid ever. You tell them to do something because it's right to do, and they say, I don't want to do it, okay? But this isn't just in kids. It's in every college student. It's in every young professional. It's in every 40-year-old. It's in every 60-year-old. It's in every single one of us. People automatically hear the word of God and reject it. This is what it means to be rebellious. This is what it means to be evil. Do not resist the command of God simply because of your pride. Do not think so much of yourself that you're unwilling to submit to the calling and the desires of God. Do not put yourself first and ignore the calling of God in your life. Listen, friend, when you gave your life to Christ, you gave up all of your rights. Every single one of them. Christ demands your life of you. You cannot any longer fall back on the idea that you're putting yourself first. It doesn't work that way. Your vacations do not come before the needs of missions. Your desire for a new car, a better TV, a cell phone do not come before the kingdom. Yes, this means that you're going to have to give up some pleasures and support to support missions across the lands. It means that. This might even be a hard thing for you to do. Kill your pride. Kill it before it kills you and severs you from the grace of Jesus Christ. Sometimes, people keep from supporting missions simply because of gossip. Simply because of gossip. They simply speak of things whether that are not true, whether they know them to be true or they just repeat what other people have said, simply as a way to justify their actions. There's no doubt in my mind that Diotrephes was spreading wicked rumors about John to support his rejection of John. Maybe you believe that we're simply asking for money from you to fund our own church. Just money-hungry schlubs we are. Instead of funding aid and help for people overseas. Perhaps you think that missionaries overseas aren't doing enough preaching of the gospel and they're spending too much time digging wells and getting clean water, providing health care for people who are racked with diseases and malnourishment. Maybe, maybe, you think that they're somehow dumbing down the gospel to crank up their numbers or making easy believism sort of a part and parcel of how they present the gospel to people. There are numerous things that you might believe. Maybe you think that giving to the IMB and the NAM goes to fund a large bureaucracy instead of actually funding the work of missionaries overseas. There's a lot of stuff that you can believe, but I'm asking you, friend, avail yourself of the truth. There are ways to find out answers to all of those questions. You can go to the IMB website. You can ask missionaries. You can ask the elders of this church. If you are concerned about anything like this, don't fall prey to simply believing rumors because they're out there. Certainly don't spread them without grounding them in the truth. Avail yourself of those truths and do not let gossip keep you from doing what is right and good. And lastly, 
Lastly, some keep themselves from supporting missions simply because of tribalism. Tribalism is a thought that the way you do stuff is the only good way to do stuff. And specifically within Christianity, that in order for something to be Christian, it's going to look a lot like you. You are the epitome of what a Christian is to be. This church is the epitome of what a church ought to look like. Diotrephes was not only keeping missionaries out of his church, he was even disciplining those who did. He kicked them out, a sign that welcoming these missionaries was tantamount to denial of the gospel. Listen, he was saying, these are not the kind of people that you need to be. You need to follow me. It was simply pure and simple that they had to come alongside of what Diotrephes was doing. And if anyone disagreed with him, they couldn't possibly be a Christian. And so he kicked them out of the church. Let's be very clear. Let's be very clear. Missionaries are fallible, frail human beings, and they will sin. They will do things that are wrong. They will purposely do things that are wrong because they're sinful. That's what sin is in us. They might have wrong beliefs about things. They might seek to take the gospel to people in ways that we don't agree with. Perhaps the context of the gospel in the country where they are planting a field strikes us as odd and at first blush, not much like the gospel at all. These things do not make those who are fallen any less Christian, though. We cannot prescribe sinless people to the mission field because the mission field would be empty. Not only that, but we cannot prescribe what the gospel looks like to every single culture because it doesn't work that way. It just flat out doesn't work that way. Do not think because it doesn't look like you'd wish it to that somehow it means that the gospel has been failed to preach adequately in that context. certainly don't think that those who adhere to the gospel in what you might call a strange and inconsistent manner are actually inconsistent. Indeed, this takes a huge deal of, of care and concern and wisdom to be able to understand how it is that the gospel is contextually carried from one to another. Frankly, I think that this entire thing is what the, the book of Galatians is about. It's about how is the gospel contextualized. And even Peter got that wrong in the book of Galatians. It's not an easy thing. But we need to make very sure, however, that we're not simply exporting our culture, our own wants and desires, and our own predilections and enforcing them on others. Crossway Christian Church, I think, works really well in Bay City. It might not work very well in Mogadishu. It might not work very well in Sao Paulo. And it certainly wouldn't work well in Beijing. This means we have to understand well what the core and untranslatable part of the gospel is that never, ever changes and allow everything else that can change to change. This calls for great wisdom and maturity. What it doesn't call for are snap judgments based on nothing more than personal whims and desires. We live in a very odd age the modern missionary movement didn't start all that long ago. It was literally like eight years before the 1800s, 1792, 1793, that William Carey got shipped out against the will of a huge amount of Baptists, General Baptists, not Southern Baptists. Huge amount of, of General Baptists in England, he went against their wishes to India. 
He went without much aid or help. The trip to India was brutal, and the support that he got when he arrived in India was minimal. Now, much of the physical difficulty has been relieved. Not all, but much. The trips overseas are mostly done by plane, not by boat. Southern Baptists, especially our missionaries, are offered a great deal of medical, psychological, theological, and spiritual support while on the field overseas. And yet, and yet, God's done this really, really funny thing. He has so worked in the world that even barely 200 years after the modern missions has started, you know what he's done? He's made America a place where the nations want to come so that we don't need to send missionaries all over the world. We do, and we should. But people actually want to come here. The mission fields want to up, spend their own money, and bring themselves here. Millions of refugees looking for a home. These people, in a large part, are totally unreached by the gospel. They're coming from places where Christianity and, and even self-described Christians are well under 10, 8, 5%. Millions of these people have never heard the gospel before. And they want a park next to you where you don't need a plane, you don't need a boat, you don't need a passport, and you don't need a visa to talk to them. God is literally bringing the mission field to America. Now, perhaps there are good reasons, I think there are, to be careful about how we support refugees that come in. Certainly, there are national security issues to consider, as well as economic and cultural issues. But Christians, you cannot avoid the awesome privilege that God is affording you and the awesome responsibility that he has given to you in this. We should not simply reject them because we can, nor can we let our pride stand in the way. We should not let unwarranted gossip about what type of people they are, nor concerns for our version of the tribe keep us from seeing the opportunity that God has open for us. I'm not telling you what to think, Christian, but I'm telling you, you need to think very deeply about this. The word of God begs for your consideration of these events in terms of what they mean first and foremost for the kingdom of God and only a very, very distant second or 1,830 second about what it means for America. Think, church, and pray about these things. As we go, it is my sincere hope, my sincere hope above everything else, that you leave with a passion for missions and the work that is done in the world for the glory and the sake of Jesus Christ. Seeing better how support of our missionaries encourages the saints, how it allows us to partner with their success, how it shows support for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it demonstrates our love for that gospel in giving of ourselves to it, in the proclamation of it to the entire world, not only here in Bay City, not only in Michigan, but in places in Africa and South America and Asia and Europe where it is not named. And everything we do, let us work for the glory of Jesus Christ 
so that every nation, tribe, tongue, and peoples might come to know our Savior and worship him as Lord. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we know that we need wisdom. These things come not from ourselves, but from you. We pray that you will give us faith and determination. Give us strength in our weakness. Lead us by your Spirit so that we might do what you have called us to do. Let us not fear the world, but hold you in esteem. Let us give fully and totally of ourselves, that in all things you might be glorified. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.